In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. Well, as we put ourselves in the presence of God before Jesus, who presides over this time of prayer, we ask him to help us penetrate his profound message on detachment that would include sobriety, generosity with material goods, etc. And maybe we could ask the Holy Spirit to help us discern and apply personally this point in the way by St. Jose Maria under the chapter of poverty, point through 631. He says, Detach yourself from the goods of this world. Love and practice poverty of spirit. Be content with what is sufficient for leading a simple and temperate life. Otherwise, you will never be an apostle. And let's prayerfully try to figure that point out the connection, the intimate connection of being an apostle, which means a messenger of Jesus Christ. It would include witness. It would include a marketer, a promoter, a magnet for Jesus Christ. What's the connection between detachment from material goods, events, judgments, routines, you name it. What's the connection? And we could apply the opposite as well. No matter what kind of gifts I have, no matter how much charm I have, that could even work against me. If I don't have detachment of spirit, I get nowhere in terms of promoting the kingdom in this world, in my society, in my family, in my workplace, in my social relations. Detachment is that indispensable condition to reflect the light of the gospel to be that light of the world, to be that salt of the earth. Let's reconstruct this celebrated encounter between Jesus and traditionally who is called the rich young man. And we read from St. Mark, The other Gospels also report this encounter as well. Chapter 10, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17 to 22. 
And as he was setting out on his journey, journey is a common image in the gospel because Jesus did go on long trips, relatively speaking, especially if it's on foot. And the whole idea of journey is that we walk with Christ. That's another image, walking with our Lord. The trajectory is within our own heart, but nevertheless, it is a spiritual walk with him. And why this image of walking? Because walking is a involvement of progress. You need to take steps to reach your de- destination. These steps, again, are steps of deeds of faith, deeds of love. So for me to embark upon this journey and follow Jesus, I need to fulfill certain conditions that he is going to present to me personally. Another gospel says he's a rich young man. So this rich young man is going to approach Jesus and basically ask him, what is the meaning of human life? A typical question raised by young people, a lot more than people in old age or middle age. But young people are searching more for meaning in life. What does it take to become fulfilled? And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. So it's another indicator that he's young. He ran up to him and then dropped to his knees. Two things I have trouble with right now, given the fact that I'm a poor old man. He asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be fulfilled? What must I do to be happy? What must I do to obtain this exquisite life that defines God himself, that is perfectly reflected in human form, in Jesus' life, his words, his demeanor? How do I get a piece of that? How do I share in that? What must I do? A very common question of a young person. What must I do to be happy? What must I do to be a saint? Because what is sanctity, what is holiness, but it is participating in in an intense way, in a profound way, in the life of God himself through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to give three considerations, in a certain sense, three steps in achieving this happiness. He begins with a consideration that could slip by us, but this consideration is extremely important. And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Step two will involve keeping the Ten Commandments. Number three, a radical gift of self to unload everything you possess, give it to the poor, and then follow it. But let's detain ourselves on the first consideration or step number one. Only God is good. Is that really reasonable? Does that statement mesh with reason? Only God is good. Yes, it's revealed. Yes, this is the word of God. How do we make this compatible with reasonable experience? I met or ran into a friend who had a big smile on his face, and I said, oh, you're pretty chipper today. He said, because I had an awesome turkey sandwich with the right kind of gravy and the right amount. So, at least for him, and probably the great majority of people, that whatever he, whatever kind of turkey sandwich he had, it was pretty good to call my attention uh, regarding his own cheerful demeanor. So that turkey sandwich was good. When your favorite team wins a football game or basketball game or baseball game or a hockey game, more or less I'm covering the main sports in this uh, country, well, that's good. My team won. That's good. And more seriously, hey, that's my father. He's good. My mother, she's terrific. My friend, he's good. She's good. My spouse, he's good. She's good. With all due respect, Lord, I beg to disagree with you. Yes, you're the best. But there's other persons who are good. There's other experiences that are good. There's other things that are good. In fact, it seems like you're contradicting yourself because you're the same God who said at the dawning of creation of man and woman, you said it was good. In fact, after creating man and woman, you said it was very good what you did. So you'd always end each step of creation with, and God saw that it was good. Now you're saying only God is good. And you're referring to mountains and waters and reptiles and birds and animals, and you're saying they're good, and now you say only God is good. How do we reconcile this with reason? Well, there's certain experiences that sort of not even sort of contradict this or to be brutally honest radically contradict this typical scenario of a young man a young woman both good christians attractive spiritual idealistic 
close friends with each other. High achievers, but their faith is even more important. I mean, what's there not to like? Ideal relationship. That has to be good. Well, Jesus maintains only God is good. Or someone who is really into sports. If someone asked me when I was in high school, what would your dream be if you had your choice? I said, well, to be an NFL running back or a linebacker. There was no even remote possibility of me achieving status on a high school team, let alone professional sports. But I could speak for many teenage boys that that would be something to aspire to. Only God is good. And I know from experience that having a great turkey sandwich could produce feeling of contentment, pleasure, even a temporary joy because of a good meal. But I'd put my life on it. That gentleman is not happy right now because he had a good turkey sandwich. Those beautiful relationships, and they are beautiful, and they reflect the love of God, the goodness of God, a beautiful courtship, two people preparing for their wedding, madly in love. And again, that relationship, that euphoria of a romance, ebbs away. And that couple will be the first to admit that their fulfillment is not total. Or that basketball star, that baseball all-star, that football star playing in front of thousands of people. I've seen it with my own eyes. Their Their happiness does not depend on their professional achievement. Does it give thrills? Yes. Does it give a momentary joy? Yes. Does it give a lasting joy? No, not at all. Augustine gives the answer, we all know the answer, how to reconcile only God is good with reason. Augustine was that ancient perfect specimen, genius, top of his class in school, great literary man, won a prize for poetry, dominated all the classical writings of that time. (coughs) Had money, indulged in illicit sensual pleasure, 
if I'm not mistaken, had a mistress by the time he was age 16. <coughs> in spite of his mother's overtures for him to be baptized, he rebuffed her. He was having a grand old time partying in Carthage, at least according to the literature I've read. It makes ancient Rome look like a convent in comparison to Carthage. Partying, women, drink, academic success, joins a heretical sect that kind of rationalizes his wrongdoing. And in his latter years, in his confessions, the confessions of St. Augustine, He comes up with that lament. How late have I loved you, Lord. And the other famous statement, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. It doesn't come from someone who lived in the street and had nothing. Relatively speaking, or in a material sense, he had everything. He had all the talent someone, any normal person would want, the, the recreation, the pleasures, the sense of achievement. He had it. Only God could fill us. Whether we have a lot of gifts or not, that's why St. Paul says that we have one gift that makes every other gift look like nothing, and that is our love, and God is love, our connection with God. And so that's what the Lord is saying to the rich young man. Only God could fill you, and you need to fulfill certain conditions to be filled with God, and as a consequence, have the capacity to attract others to Christ. We need a certain detachment. Well, I should probably replace that word certain with a radical detachment. That's what the Lord says. And in this encounter with the rich young man, the Lord is not delivering a message to a select few or just these odd ducks who want to be totally centered on God. But this is for public consumption. Everything in the gospel is for public consumption. The Lord is saying perfect happiness has nothing to do with the partial goods of this world, as good as they may be. God's the first one to admit. He saw it and it was good. But the human heart, and even Aristotle knew that, he never went so far to claim that there was a personal God. How could he? He didn't have access to divine revelation. But Aristotle more or less lists goods that seem to be able to fulfill the human heart. Typical. 
wealth, power, high esteem, fame, health, pleasure. It goes on to say, obviously, meditation is not the time to um, elaborate on his ethics. But he goes on to say that the human heart is such that those goods that could come across as ultimate goods do not fulfill the human heart because only a universal good, a total good, a highest good, can fill the human heart. And who is that? That's God. It's God accessible, who is Jesus Christ. The second step in this work of detachment is to basically clean up our act. Get rid of any enslaving influence in my life. And he lists the Ten Commandments not just so the young man reviews the moral law, but there is a hidden meaning here. And that is the commandments serve the purpose of giving me self-possession so that I could actually choose Christ as my ultimate good, so that I could give my heart totally to him. Again, we go back to that point. Only by doing that can I attract people's attention in the good sense that Jesus is real. To be a modern apostle, I need to make him real by allowing him to show his face through my face. Why the commandments? It seems a little bit humdrum, stating the obvious. What are the enslaving influences in my life? Anger, that's covered by the fifth commandment, and connected with that is resentments, mistreatment of others, negative thoughts about others, and I need to repent over my anger so that I control my anger, and my anger doesn't control me. If it controls me, I don't possess myself, and therefore I can't give of myself. If I don't possess myself, anger possesses me. I'm enslaved to anger. I've given myself to my anger. And we can go on and on. It can be greed, accumulating wealth, looking for the next gadget, erroneously thinking that by giving my loved ones as much as material possible, 
I'm going to contribute to their well-being or to their happiness. I saw a photo of a cute little kid, but I almost missed discerning his photo because he was buried practically in Christmas presents. Good parents say, well, listen, I don't want to... I want my children to have good things that I never had when I was growing up. I think that's faulty logic. As if having more is going to give us an increase of happiness. That's just simply not true. We can be slaves for toward our lusts. There's a lot of brainwashing out in our society that we can only be happy by gratifying ourselves sensually. Well, that's a very powerful enslaving influence that disallows me to give myself because I'm controlled by my loss. It could be gluttony, basically what was traditionally known as the seven wrong inclinations that are the effects of original sin that we call the capital sins. It could be greed, it could be lust, it could be anger, it could be pride, etc. I need to keep that under control and be liberated from that, beginning with the sacrament of reconciliation and seeing that my first step in discipleship is to live those commandments that frees me in such a way that there's self-control, self-mastery, and ultimately, self-possession. If I'm owned by my passions or my evil inclinations, I can't connect with Christ. And not to digress too much, But in my pastoral experience, a failure to pray, a failure to practice one's faith, sometimes with the excuse of, I don't like organized religion. In many instances, not all instances, each person is different. It masks an attachment to lust or attachment to wealth or resentment. It's interesting to know know that. And so the Lord is doing due diligence, and what's a little bit disconcerting is that he lives the commandments. He's, it's normal, but he's still an exception. He lives the, all the commandments. And, excuse the uh, flippant language, but then now the Lord... Moves in for the, moves in for the kill. He wants the kid to be on his team. The gospel says. He looked at him and loved him. Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said to him. One more step. You lack something important. So far, so good. You agree with me. Only God is good. Only God could fulfill you. You're keeping all the commandments. That's quite good. That's way above average. And you're certainly 
better man in terms of virtue than the motley crew that I have that I call apostles. You lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. At that saying, his countenance fell. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had so much going for him. Talented man. Good looking. Heartthrob of his town or of his area. Virtuous. Religious. Embraces the right moral issues. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I would like you on my team. And who are the poor? Well, the people who do not have God, who don't know Christ. And only the happy person, only the cheerful person, as the Holy Father tells us that this new evangelization we need to lead with joy, only that person can evangelize. That is why it's kind of a little bit of a mantra throughout the Gospels. They left all things to follow him. That is the condition Jesus needs. That's the condition the Holy Spirit needs to forge that image of Christ in such a way that I attract people to him. Those are the poor. And I sell all that I have because the price tag to have Christ filling my heart is all that I have, whether it's the two pennies that are, is also narrated in the gospel of the widow dropping her pennies in the basket, the collection basket, or it's someone with means like this rich young man. And it's not just his money, but it's himself. That's all you possess. And he went away sad. I mean, he couldn't cut it. You cannot evangelize by being sad. And you cannot be joyful in a sustained way unless you are totally connected with Christ. You want to give him everything. I know it's a work of a lifetime, but you need that mindset. I want to give him everything. It's kind of interesting to note, and that's a common denominator among all the saints. I've seen Mother Teresa, met her briefly, Cheerful. Met St. John Paul. Very happy. Met Blessed Alvaro. Always with a smile. Never met St. Jose Maria, but those who did know him, now they're very much an endangered species. All would tell about his humor and his contagious joy. Even though, humanly speaking, these saints have suffered a lot but they've given themselves. But to give ourselves, we need to be detached. And we go to the Blessed Virgin Mary, Queen of all saints, cause of our joy. She begins her discipleship and her motherhood by giving herself totally, leaving all that she has, giving herself. We ask for her maternal prayer of intercession. That we believe that I need to 
sell all that I have. Not in a literal way, but spiritually. That spirit of detachment in order to give the world Jesus Christ in an analogous way as Our Lady did, as the saints did, as St. Jose Maria did. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.